You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. The first reading for this week is Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 23. The second reading is John chapter 15, verses 11 to 17. Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 to 23. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. John chapter 15 Verses 11 to 17. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Well, hello, can you hear me okay? Yes, audible to everyone, excellent. 
Well, welcome to our talk series to round off semester two, Relationships Made For It. Where we are going uh, to look at what the Bible has to say about the world of relationships. And we figure it's a good point in the semester, a good point in the year to hit on such a juicy subject. Whether the topic causes your eyes to twinkle, glaze over, or roll into the back of your heads, the fact of the matter is the subject causes a reaction. And why are you reacting? Well, because it is something that matters to all of us. And the reason for that is, as our series title suggests, we're all made for a relationship. But what sort of relationship and with whom? My prayer is at the end of these three weeks, each of you, whatever your current relationship status reads on whatever social platform you care to communicate it or not, you will have a richer, fuller and deeper appreciation and grasp of the depth of relationship for which you have been created and redeemed. And that wherever you're at right now with thoughts and feelings on that matter, you will receive some biblical instruction, encouragement and gospel-driven hope that allows you to grow in the knowledge and goodness the gift of our relationship with God and with each other is. So let's dive in. Harry, thank you for reading the Bible for us. We had two readings, the first one from Genesis chapter 2. Um, and I chose these two passages, Genesis 2 and John 15, because it takes us on a Bible story arc that I think helpfully highlights our very design for relationship at our beginning and how it is that in Jesus we see and learn the fullness and beauty of relationship that is possible and how our brokenness can be restored. So in Genesis 2, we get a second account of creation, a, a close-up on the particular part of creation that involves us, God creating people. Now, while in Genesis 1.27, we have the macro view of God creating his image bearers. But in Genesis 2, we get the micro view. We get the director's cut, if you will. It's slowed down and it's explained. Who here watches director's cuts of movies? You know, that, that playback, blow by, yeah, there's a few hands. I get more hours spent on Lord of the Rings than surely is credible. I just don't understand. I don't understand the appeal. For me, that ruins the movie magic. I don't want to know. I don't want to know how they made it. I'm not interested. It's the, it's the magic of the movie. However, this director's cut captures my imagination because it's my story and it's your story. Let's take a look. In Genesis 2, we get to see the intimate involvement of God with us. Did you notice it? In Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. God formed us and breathed us into life. Now, in my former life as a nurse, I had occasion to be involved in resuscitation efforts. Can I say there is nothing calm or beautiful about trying to breathe life into another person and it is regularly and sadly unsuccessful? It is frantic and adrenaline-filled, it's intense and it's exhausting and there's no promise of life at the end of it, no matter how hard you try. 
Now that's a long way from the beauty-filled event we have in Genesis 2. God brings a man to life effortlessly. Formed from the dust of the ground, God breathed humanity into life. From dirt to a divinely inspired being. The man lives having received the breath of God. And we, all the humans that follow, are a part of that. All because God chose to give us life. To create us to be delighted in us and to have us as his image bearers in the world. God has made us for a relationship with himself in a way that none of the other creatures are made. Did you pick that up in verse 19? Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. No details are accounted of breath nostril closeness or connection with the birds and wild animals on that level. That level of intimate, close relationship is not there. And so while we share a creaturely reality with all the other creatures, we have a creator God, we are his creatures, we have that same level with the birds and animals, yet we're not the same. Our relationship with our creator God is substantively different. And that's exactly where the passage takes us, into the newly formed relationship we have between the living God and his living image bearer. In verse 8, we see the Lord God has created a garden for his image bearer and placed him in it. It's a place of beauty and a place of provisions aplenty, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. We were made to appreciate and wonder at God's creation. Now, you know it. You've all experienced it, I am sure. Even though in our rebellion against God, we are now outside the garden. God in his goodness and mercy causes the heavens and the earth to display his beauty. That sunrise with all the pinks and the purples and the blues or sunset for those that are not early risers. The reward of a mountain peak and deep valley views after that climb. The marvel and majesty God has imbued a massive river red gum that draws our gaze and admiration and somehow fills us with that sense of all that is good and true and right. All of it displays the glory of our God. And there is more in our relationship with God than just admiration and awe. Look with me at verse 16. God cares for his image bearer by instructing him. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. And the Lord God gives a command to obey, a way of responding to God. And he gives his image bearer a warning. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. This expresses a unique relationship with the creator. The man has been given a distinct position of privilege in creation, and God's affection is set on this one, like on no other of the Lord's creatures. Surely this represents the pinnacle of everything. Life is good and surely couldn't get any better. God and his image-bearing creature enjoying the best of life in harmony and peace. And yet, verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so we're told about all the creatures the Lord God has made being brought to the man and the man naming them one after the other. But despite the parade of Eden's zoological collection, we're informed in verse 20 
but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Hmm. God brings all the animals to the man, but not one was found to be a good match. Not one was found to be an able helper. Man's best friend was not to be found in a well-trained dog or a majestic horse or an awesome gliding eagle. I've always wanted one of those. <laughs> but in one like him, an equal image bearer, able to share that load, that responsibility, that honour, that relationship. And so from the man is made one like him and yet distinct from him, complementary and necessary. Now he has company. Now he can commune with one who is like him. Now they can engage and share and wonder at God their creator together as his image bearers. Life is richer, fuller, better. Now the not good is made good. A man is no longer alone. He is matched with one who is just like him, taken from him, of no different origin, not a different humanity, the same though necessarily different. I like the way the Holman Bible puts it in verse 23, after the parade of all the animals and the exhaustive search, and the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. One is not from Mars and the other from Venus, no matter how popular the notion is that men and women come from different planets. The Bible is wanting to clearly say men and women made by God as his image bearers belong in community, in relationship with each other and with him. It's part of God's beautiful design. Do you see? Everything in creation was very good except the aloneness of God's image bearer, the man he made. And that rings true to who we know God to be explained in the Bible to be. In his very self, God is in community. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit exist in perfect love, in perfect communion. We are created in the overflow of that love. So to be his true image bearers, we need opportunity to commune, to connect, to relate to the other, to be in community. We're created for relationship with God and we're created for relationship with our fellow image bearers. God has created us to be social creatures, to exist in relationship. And yes, there is the reality of man and woman and the potential for sex and procreation all part of it being good, and we will turn to that next week. But because of the Bible storyline that Joash has been so carefully explained to us over the last nine weeks, and what that tells us, it can't only be about populating the earth. For when God came in flesh, the fullest expression that ever there was of being an image bearer, Jesus, did not come to populate the world through procreation, but instead by redemption and recreation. In Jesus, through his death in our place, taking the penalty for our rebellion against God, who made us, we are redeemed and made a new creation in him. So as we look back to the creation story and of being one human family out of Adam, so we are one new family through and out of Jesus. 
Now I'm either reacquainting myself with this truth, having forgotten it somewhere along the line or realizing it for the first time. And either way, it's a wonderful truth to behold. And it fills me afresh with hope and wonder at God's redemption plans. So let us look at the ways Jesus explores the idea of relationship with him. What does he see as vital or essential? What does he value and hold up as worthy relationally? In Jesus, the kingdom of God is inaugurated here on earth. It has begun and it will be brought to fullness at Jesus' return. He came to show us the Father and to restore us to right relationship with him and with each other making us ready to be a part of the new creation. And what is he looking for? John 15, 12 and following tells us he is looking for and inviting friends to know him and know his love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love have no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now chapter 15 sits in the middle of Jesus' final conversation with his followers, those who have been with him day in and day out for three years. And he's just physically demonstrated to them back in chapter 13 who he is, the king who has come to serve. He took the role that very night of the lowest sort of household servant and washed their dusty, calloused, sweaty, grime-covered feet by hand. And now he's speaking with them about how and who they are to be. They are his friends, loved by him and served by him. The people he has chosen to share his very self with. He has disclosed to them the very things of God. What his father has shared with him, he has shared with his friends. They know his business. They know his heart. They are, in the immediate view, the very friends that Jesus will lay his life down for shortly. But he instructs them to love each other as he has loved them. Their friendship is to be seeking to serve the other, to treat others above themselves to seek the other's good above their own. Jesus' call to friendship is an exalted one. It's not about what you can get, but what you have to give. Having received his sacrificial servant-hearted love, Jesus' followers, his friends, are to love others in this safe, same other-centered love-giveaway manner. It's not Jesus' nice idea, it's his command. As a command was given by God to his image bearers in the first garden, now a new command is given to all who are redeemed and a new creation in Jesus. Love one another. But this time we can fully depend on Jesus' completed work of love to sustain us and to help us keep his command. Look again with me at what he says in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer servants, no longer followers, but something much more, something 
much closer. Jesus calls them his friends. This is intimate reality. Jesus tells this motley crew, his friends, that he's deliberately chosen them. They're not accidental or incidental. Each one is important. Each one is loved. To them, he says, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. Jesus speaks of a love that is greater, greatest of all, sacrificial love. And for who? Not for a lover, not for a parent, nor one's own child, but for one's friends. The amazing news of the gospel is that not only does Jesus lay down his life for his friends, but that, as it says in Romans 5, Jesus did it while we were still God's enemies, still actively rebelling against his rightful rule. God the Son dies so that we might be restored to friendship with God who made us and loves us. Knowing what Jesus, our friend, has done for us by making it possible to obey his command to love each other, Jesus makes that possible. What God has done for us in Jesus, in his dying in our place, to fix and restore our relationship with God, the Father, makes it possible to love each other and thereby benefit from and enjoy the riches of friendship. So let me explain that by unpacking how Jesus impacts our relationships with others. In Jesus, because we now know ourselves as both friends with God and adopted as his children, we know we are loved in all our imperfections. We're worked on by the Spirit who is transforming us into Christ's likeness. Being fully known and fully loved, chosen and accepted by God in Jesus, frees us from looking for and longing for that in someone else. Instead, we're free, free to share the joy and truth of that reality with each other. Friendship as a valuable and treasured relationship is often neglected and overlooked because in this world we have become absorbed by the obsession with eros, romantic love. We can be so busy looking for someone to complete me, to make me happy, to see me and know me, that we are missing the deep value of developing good friendships right in front of us. And the love of friends and shared community is for all, something we can all participate in and benefit from where Eros love may not be. Can I warn you here and now, don't miss the opportunity to spend time being a friend and having friends, to love and enjoy and develop good friendships, godly friendships, knowing that you've been made for it. They enrich our lives and they're a gift to us. God has made us for relationship with himself and with each other. Now, I've lived for most in this room twice as long as you. I can look back on my life and tell you that I have been richly blessed by many friendships. Some have been just for a season, um, we've shared a particular journey and then our paths have diverged and the closeness is no longer possible. But 
because of the fixedness of my relationship with Jesus, their relationship with Jesus, his faithfulness and the promise of eternity, I can let that friend go and we can move on and bless others. We've dented and impacted each other's world. We've shaped one another for a season and that impression has been left. The value is not lost. Others are like Frodo and Sam and Mary and Pippin or as Anne of Green Gables would have it, they're bosom buddies. And I have a few of those in my world that I wouldn't be without. My richest friendships are those where we are able to freely share who we are in Jesus, uh, in our daily lives, in our struggles, our highs and our lows. It's a relationship where we invite each other's input and challenge, but also free to be silly and unguarded. This is possible where we are not needy of each other's approval, where our deepest needs and our longing to be known and to belong are met in Jesus. But perhaps that's not you. Perhaps you are finding any sort of a relationship rather difficult. Well, let me say, like all good things this life has to offer, it will take time. An insightful man I know and passionate follower of Jesus, Michael Colley, has helpfully said, the currency of love is time. You can't rush it and you won't be able to force it. It will take intentionality and patience. It will involve a degree of risk, vulnerability and the possibility of rejection. And not all friendships will work out. You cannot force people to like you. It really doesn't work. But knowing our friendship with God in Jesus is secure because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that Jesus is our faithful friend who will never leave us or forsake us, that by his Holy Spirit, he is with us through the ups and downs. This truth is the solid ground we need to give us courage to pursue but not demand friendship. When we look to Jesus, know his faithful, never wavering love for us and have him as the basis for our friendships, it frees us from placing unrealistic expectations on others, which often suffocate the relationship. Knowing we fail him, but he never fails us and instead forgives us and is gentle with us, enables us to do likewise with our friends. And I have certainly needed my friends to be patient and forgiving with me. Having Jesus, the real saviour in our lives, who satisfies our deepest longings for love and acceptance, mean we avoid placing those unrealistic expectations and needs on another. Spending time in our relationship with Jesus stops us from the unhealthy practices that might creep in and patterns of relating to others where we're looking for that from them, where we will undermine the friendship with emotional manipulation or control or dependency, jealousy and demands of unhealthy exclusivity. A word to the wise. You can be friendly to all, kind and generous and patient with everyone you meet. I think that's right and good, but it's not possible to be good and close and friends to all. Even in a group of 12, Jesus had three he was especially close with. You, me, we are finite beings. Time and space are our limitation. So you cannot build close relationships with everyone you meet. Don't try, you'll kill yourself. 
True friendships build around shared passions, interests and values. It requires time for trust to develop so that honesty, vulnerability and challenge are possible. It's one of the reasons why I think you can hope for and build deep fulfilling friendships as followers of Jesus, even if you don't currently have those friendships now. There is latent potential and that ought to encourage you. It's often why good friendships develop around shared projects such as Beach Mission, an excellent way to follow up from all you'll learn at NTE, FYI, plug, plug, plug. <laughs> this is because as you work close, side by side, you and your friends have Jesus and his purposes at the centre. You meet alongside each other with his vision before you. You share his love. You know together his acceptance and his sacrifice. Together you can share your awe and wonder and thankfulness and egg each other on in growing to be more and more like him. And as I finish with a hint towards next week, let me point out, friendship too, unlike Eros, has room for others to join in. Unlike a marriage where there is rightly room for only two, Friendship can be augmented and added to and embellished by the contribution of a third and a fourth, or sometimes more. C.S. Lewis puts it beautifully in his chapter on friendship in The Four Loves, I highly recommend a read, uh, by talking about three friends, very imaginatively called A, B and C, <laughs> who lose C. Oh. And now not only does A miss C, but he also misses what C brought out of B. Their friendship is blessed and unique to the personalities that are within it. We get to enjoy different facets of our friends by seeing them alongside others. There is a generosity and a joy in the comfortable and contented friendships. Now you know when you're in the midst of that. You know how attractive it is. And you certainly know where you're, when you are in the midst of its absence where you or others are treated as competitors for another's attention or affection. There's the in-house jokes and the shared history aired and the constant references to their exclusive hold over one another. It's not pretty and it's not healthy. They are not the relationships for which you were made. God made us for right and health-filled relationships with himself and with each other. Jesus has an elevated view on the importance and primacy of friendship Whatever other relationships we may become a part of, friendship is for all of us. As the most fully human being that ever was, who walked in perfect friendship and obedience to God, his Father, the greatest intimacy Jesus invites his followers into now as then is friendship. It is there for you and for me and in, for us to benefit from the friendship Jesus, Jesus has initiated with us. We are free to obey Jesus and his command to love each other in and through friendship as he has loved us. It is the relationship we're made for. Well, let me enjoy a little of that relationship we're made for now by talking to God in prayer. Please join me. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the way it instructs our hearts and teaches us all we need to know uh, to grow in loving you and loving each other. Uh, please take your word tonight and help it 
uh, feed and instruct us according to your good purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.